5. Calvinism in France France, too, at that time, was all aglow with the free, bounding, restless spirit of Calvinism. In France, the Calvinists were called Huguenots. The character of the Huguenots the world knows. Their moral purity and heroism, whether persecuted at home or exiled abroad, has been the wonder of both friends and foe. Their history, says the Encyclopedia Britannica, is a standing marvel illustrating the abiding power of strong religious conviction. The account of their endurance is almost the most remarkable and heroic records of religious history. The Huguenots made up the industrious artisans a class of France, and to be honest as a Huguenot became a proverb denoting the highest degree of integrity. On St. Bartholomew's Day, Sunday, August 24, 1572, a great many Protestants were treacherously murdered in Paris, and for days thereafter the shocking scenes were repeated in different parts of France. The total number of those who lost their lives in the St. Bartholomew Massacre has been variously estimated at from 10,000 to 50,000. Schaff estimates it at 30,000. These furious persecutions caused hundreds of thousands of the French Protestants to flee to Holland, Germany, England, and America. The loss to France was irreparable. Malcoly, the English historian, writes as follows of those who settled in England. The humblest of the refugees were intellectually and morally above the average of the common people of any kingdom in Europe. The great historian Lecky, who himself was a cold-blooded rationalist, wrote, The destruction of the Huguenots by the revocation of the Edict of Nates was the destruction of the most solid, the most noblest, the most virtuous, the most generally enlightened element in the French nation, and it prepared the way for the inevitable degradation of the national character. In the last serious bulwark, was removed that might have broken the force of that torrent of skepticism in voice which a century later laid prostrate in merited ruin both the altar and the throne. If you have read their history, says Warbarton, you must know how cruel and unjust were the persecutions instigated against them. The best blood of France deluged the battlefield. The brightest genius of France was suffered to lie neglected and starving in prison. And the most noblest characters of France ever possessed were hunted like wild beasts of the forest and slain with as little pity. And again, in every respect, they stood immeasurably superior to all the rest of their fellow countrymen. The strict sobriety of their lives, the purity of their moral actions, their industrious habits, in their entire separation from the foul sensuality which corrupted the whole of the national life of France at this period were always effectual means of betraying the principles which they held and were so regarded by their enemies. The debauchery of the kings had descended through the aristocracy to the common people. Religion had become a mass of corruption, consistent only with its cruelty. The monasteries had become breeding places of iniquity. Celibacy had proved to be a foul foundation of unchastity and uncleanness. Immorality, licentiousness, 
despotism, and extortion in state and church were indescribable. The forgiveness of sins could be purchased for money, and a shameful traffic in indulgences was carried on under the Pope's sanction. Some of the Popes were monsters of iniquity. Ignorance was appalling. Education was confined to the clergy and the nobles. Many even of the priests were unable to read or write, and society in general had fallen to pieces. This is a one-sided but not an exaggerated description. It is true as far as it goes, and needs only to be supplemented by the brighter side, which was that many honest Roman Catholics were earnestly working for reform from within the Church. The Church, however, was in an irreformable condition. Any change, if it was to come at all, had to come from without. Either there would be no reformation, or it would be in opposition to Rome. But gradually Protestant ideas were filtering into France from Germany. Calvin began his work in Paris and was soon recognized as one of the leaders of the new movement in France. His zeal aroused the opposition of the church authorities and it became necessary for him to flee for his life. And although Calvin never returned to France after his settlement in Geneva, he remained the leader of the French Reformation and was consulted at every step. He gave the Huguenots their creed in form of government. Throughout the following period, it was according to the unanimous testimony of history, the system of faith which we call Calvinism, that inspired the French Protestants in their struggle with the papacy and its royal supporters. What the Puritan was in England, the Covenanter was in Scotland, and the Huguenot was in France. That Calvinism developed the same type of men in each of these several countries is a most remarkable proof of its power in the formation of character. So rapidly did Calvinism spread throughout France that Fisher in his History of the Reformation tells us that in 1561 the Calvinists numbered one-fourth of the entire population. McFetridge places the number even higher. In less than half a century, says he, this so-called harsh system of belief had penetrated every part of the land and had gained to its standards almost one half of the population and almost every grand mind of the nation. So numerous and powerful had its adherents become that for a time it appeared as if the entire nation would be swept over to their views. Smiles, in his Huguenots in France, writes, It is curious to speculate on the influence which the religion of Calvin himself a Frenchman might have exercised on the history of France as well as on the individual character of the Frenchman had the balance of forces carried the nation boldly over to Protestantism as was very nearly the case toward the end of the 16th century. Certainly the history of the nation would have been very different from that which it has been. 6. Calvinism in Holland in the struggle which freed the Netherlands from the dominating power of the papacy and from the cruel yoke of Spain, we have another glorious chapter in the history of Calvinism and humanity. The torches of the Inquisition were applied here as in few other places. The Duke of Alva boasted that within the short space of five years he had delivered 18,600 heretics to the executioner. 
The scaffold, says Motley, had its daily victims, but did not make a single convert. There were men who dared and suffered as much as men can dare and suffer in this world, and for the noblest cause that can inspire humanity. He pictures to us the heroism with which men took each other by the hand and walked into the flames, or with which women sang a song of triumph while the grave digger was shoveling the earth upon their living faces. And in another place, he says, the number of Netherlanders who were burned, strangled, beheaded, or buried alive in obedience to the edicts of Charles V and for the offense of reading the scriptures, of looking askance at a graven image, or ridiculing the actual presence of the body and blood of Christ in a wafer, have been placed as high as 100,000 by distinguished authorities, and have never been put at a lower mark than 50,000. During that memorable struggle of 80 years, more Protestants were put to death for their conscientious belief by the Spaniards than Christians suffered martyrdom under the Roman emperors in the first three centuries. Certainly in Holland, history crowns Calvinism as the creed of martyrs, saints, and heroes. For nearly three generations, Spain, the strongest nation in Europe at that time, labored to stamp out Protestantism and political liberty in these Calvinistic Netherlands, but failed. Because they sought to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience and not under the galling chains of a corrupt priesthood, their country was invaded and the people were subjected to the cruelest tortures the Spaniards could invent. And if it be asked who effected the deliverance, the answer is, it was the Calvinistic Prince of Orange, known in history as William of Silent, together with those who held the same creed. Says Dr. Abraham Kuyper, if the power of Satan at that time had not been broken by the heroism of the Calvinistic spirit, the history of the Netherlands, of Europe, and of the world would have been as painfully sad and dark as now, Thanks to Calvinism, it is bright and inspiring. If the spirit of Calvinism had not arisen in Western Europe following the outbreak of the Reformation, the spirit of half-heartedness would have gained the day in England, Scotland, and Holland. Protestantism in these countries could not have maintained itself, and through the compromising measures of a Romanized Protestantism, Germany would in all probability have been again brought under the sway of the Roman Catholic Church. Had Protestantism failed in any one of these countries, it is probable that the result would have been fatal in the others also. So intimately were their fortunes bound together. In a very real sense, the future destiny of nations was dependent on the outcome of that struggle in the Netherlands. Had Spain been victorious in the Netherlands, it is probable that the Catholic Church would have been so strengthened that it would have subdued Protestantism in England also. And even as things were, it looked for a time as though England would be turned back to Romanism. In that case, the development of America would automatically have been prevented, and in all probability, the whole American continent would have remained under the control of Spain. Let us remember further that practically all of the martyrs of these various countries were Calvinists, the Lutherans and Arminians being only a handful in comparison. As Professor 
Furin justly remarks, in Switzerland, in France, in the Netherlands, in Scotland, and in England, and wherever Protestantism has had to establish itself as the point of the sword, it was Calvinism that gained the day. However, the fact is to be explained, it is true that the Calvinists were the only fighting Protestants. There is also one other service which Holland has rendered, and which we must not overlook. The pilgrims, after being driven out of England by religious persecutions, and before their coming to America, went to Holland, and there came into contact with a religious life which, from the Calvinistic point of view, was beneficial in the extreme. Their most important leaders were Clifton, Robertson, and Brewster, three Cambridge University men who form as noble and heroic trio as can be found in the history of any nation. They were staunch Calvinists holding all the fundamental views that the reformer of Geneva had propounded. The American historian Bancroft is right when he simply calls the Pilgrim Fathers men of the same faith with Calvin. J.C. Monsma, in his book, What Calvinism Has Done for America, gives us the following summary of their life in Holland. When the pilgrims left Amsterdam for Leiden, the Reverend Clafton, their chief leader, decided to stay where he was, and so the Reverend John Robertson, Clifton's chief assistant hitherto, was elected leader, or pastor by the people. Robertson was a convinced Calvinist and opposed the teachings of Arminius whenever opportunity was afforded him. We have the indisputable testimony of Edward Winslow that Robinson, at the time when Arminianism was fast gaining ground in Holland, was asked by Polyander, Festus Humulus, and other Dutch theologians to take part in the disputes with Episcopius, the new leader of the Arminians, which were daily held in the academy at Leiden. Robinson complied with their request and was soon looked upon as one of the greatest of grammarian theologians. In 1624, the pilgrim pastor wrote a masterful treatise entitled A Defense of the Doctrine Propounded by the Synod of Dort, etc. As the Synod of Dordrecht of international fame was characterized by strict Calvinism in all its decisions, no more need be said of Robertson's religious tendencies. The pilgrims were perfectly at one with the reformed Calvinistic churches in the Netherlands and elsewhere. In his apology, published in 1619, one year before the pilgrims left Holland, Robertson wrote in a most solemn way, We do profess before God and men that such is our accord in case of religion with the Dutch reformed churches as that we are ready to subscribe to all and every article of faith in the same church, as they are laid down in the Harmony of Confession of Faith, published in that name. 7. Calvinism in America When we come to study the influence of Calvinism as a political force in the history of the United States, we come to one of the brightest pages of all Calvinistic history. Calvinism came to America in the Mayflower, and Bancroft, the greatest of American historians, pronounces the Pilgrim Fathers Calvinists in their faith according to the straightest system. John Endicott, the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, 
John Winthrop, the second governor of that colony, Thomas Hooker, the founder of Connecticut, John Davenport, the founder of New Haven Colony, and Roger Williams, the founder of the Rhode Island Colony, were all Calvinists. William Penn was a disciple of the Huguenots. It is estimated that of the three million Americans at the time of the American Revolution, 900,000 were of Scotch or Scotch-Irish origin, 600,000 were Puritan English, and 400,000 were German or Dutch Reformed. In addition to this, the Episcopalians had a Calvinistic confession in their 39 articles, and many French Huguenots also had come to this Western world. Thus we see that about two-thirds of the colonial population had been trained in the school of Calvin. Never in the world's history had a nation been founded by such people as these. Furthermore, these were people come to America not primarily for commercial gain or advantage, but because of deep religious convictions. It seems that the religious persecutions in various European countries have been providentially used to select out the most progressive and enlightened people for the colonization of America. At any rate, it is quite generally admitted that the English, Scotch, Germans, and Dutch have been the most masterful people of Europe. Let it be especially remembered that the Puritans, who formed the great bulk of the settlers in New England, brought with them a Calvinistic Protestantism, that they were truly devoted to the doctrines of the great reformers, that they had an aversion for formalism and oppression, whether in the church or in the state, in that in New England Calvinism remained the ruling theology throughout the entire colonial period. With this background, we shall not be surprised to find that the Presbyterians took a very prominent part in the American Revolution. Our own historian Bancroft says, The Revolution of 1776, so far as it was affected by religion, was a Presbyterian measure. It was the natural outgrowth of the principles which the Presbyterianism of the Old World planted in her sons, the English Puritans, the Scotch Covenanters, the French Huguenots, the Dutch Calvinists, and the Presbyterians of Ulster. So intense, universal, and aggressive were the Presbyterians in their zeal for liberty that the war was spoken of in England as the Presbyterian Rebellion. An ardent colonial supporter of King George III wrote home, I fix all the blame for these extraordinary proceedings upon the Presbyterians. They have been the chief and principal instruments in all these flaming measures. They always do and ever will act against government from that restless and turbulent anti-monarchal spirit which has always distinguished them everywhere. When the news of these extraordinary proceedings reached England, Prime Minister Horace Walpole said in Parliament, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. John Witherspoon, President of Princeton, signer of Declaration of Independence. History is eloquent in declaring that American democracy was born of Christianity and that that Christianity was Calvinism. The great revolutionary conflict which resulted in the formation of the American nation was carried out mainly by Calvinists, many of whom had been trained in the rigidly Presbyterian College at Princeton in this nation is their gift to all liberty-loving people. J. R. Sisu tells us, 
when Cornwallis was driven back to ultimate retreat in surrender at Yorktown, all of the colonials of the colonial army but one were Presbyterian elders. More than one half of all the soldiers and officers of the American army during the revolution were Presbyterians. The testimony of Emilio Castellier, the famous Spanish statesman, orator, and scholar is interesting and valuable. Castellier had been professor of philosophy in the University of Madrid before he entered politics, and he was made president of the republic which was set up by the liberals in 1873. As a Roman Catholic he hated Calvin and Calvinism. Says he, it was necessary for the Republican movement that there should come a morality more austere than Luther's, the morality of Calvin, and the church more democratic than the German, the Church of Geneva. The Anglo-Saxon democracy has for its lineage a book of a primitive society, the Bible. It is the product of a severe theology learned by the few Christian fugitives in the gloomy cities of Holland and Switzerland where the morose shade of Calvin still wanders, and it remains serenely in its grandeur, forming the most dignified, most moral, and most enlightened portion of the human race. Says Motley, In England, the seeds of liberty, wrapped up in Calvinism, and hoarded through many trying years, were at last destined to float over land and sea, to bear the largest harvests of temperate freedom for great commonwealths that were still unborn. The Calvinists founded the commonwealths of England, of Holland, and America. And again, to Calvinists more than to any other class of men, the political liberties of England, Holland, and America are due. The testimony of another famous historian, the Frenchman Taine, who himself held no religious faith, is worthy of consideration. Concerning the Calvinists, he said, these men are the true heroes of England. They founded England in spite of the corruption of the Stuarts by the exercise of duty, by the practice of justice, by obstinate toil, by vindication of right, by resistance to oppression, by the conquest of liberty, by the repression of vice. They founded Scotland. They founded the United States. At this day they are, by their descendants, founding Australia and colonizing the world. In his book, The Creed of Presbyterians, E.W. Smith asks concerning the American colonists, where learn they those immortal principles of the rights of men, of human liberty, equality and self-government, on which they base their republic, and which form today the distinctive glory of our American civilization. In the school of Calvin they learned them. There the modern world learned them. So history teaches. We shall now pass on to consider the influence which the Presbyterian Church as a church exerted in the formation of the Republic. The Presbyterian Church, says Dr. W. H. Roberts, in an address before the General Assembly, was for three quarters of a century the sole representative upon this continent of Republican government as now organized in the nation. And then he continues, From 1706 to the opening of the revolutionary struggle, 
the only body in existence which stood for our present national political organization was the General Synod of the American Presbyterian Church. It alone, among the ecclesiastical and political colonial organizations, exercised authority derived from the colonists themselves over bodies of Americans scattered through all the colonies from New England to Georgia. The colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries, it is to be remembered, while all depended upon Great Britain, were independent of each other. Such a body as the Continental Congress did not exist until 1774. The religious condition of the country was similar to the political. The congregational churches of New England had no connection with each other and had no power apart from the civil government. The Episcopal Church was without organization and the colonies was dependent for support and a ministry on the established Church of England and was filled with an intense loyalty to the British monarchy. The Reformed Dutch Church did not become an efficient and independent organization until 1771, and the German Reformed Church did not attain to that condition until 1793. The Baptist churches were separate organizations, the Methodists were practically unknown, and the Quakers were non-combatants. Delegates met every year in the General Synod, and, as Dr. Roberts tells us, the church became a bond of union and correspondence between large elements in the population of the divided colonies. Is it any wonder, he continues, that under its fostering influence, the sentiments of true liberty, as well as the tenets of a sound gospel, were preached throughout the territory from Long Island to South Carolina, and that above all a feeling of unity between the colonies began slowly but surely to assert itself. Too much emphasis cannot be laid in connection with the origin of the nation upon the influence of that ecclesiastical republic which from 1706 to 1776 was the only representative on this continent of fully developed federal republican institutions. The United States of America owes much to that oldest of American republics, the Presbyterian Church. It is, of course, not claimed that the Presbyterian Church was the only source from which sprang the principles upon which this republic was founded, but it is claimed that the principles found in the Westminster Standards were the chief basis for the republic, and that the Presbyterian Church taught, practiced, and maintained in fullness first in this land that form of government in accordance with the republic which was to be organized. Roberts the, op the opening of the revolutionary struggle from the Presbyterian ministers and churches lined up solidly on the side of the colonists and Bancraft accredits them with having made the first bold move toward independence. The synod which assembled in Philadelphia in 1775 was the first religious body to declare openly and publicly for a separation from England. It urged the people under its jurisdiction to leave nothing undone that would promote the end in view and called upon them to pray for the Congress which was then in session. The Episcopalian Church was then still united with the Church of England and it opposed the revolution. A considerable number of individuals within that church however, labored earnestly for independence and gave of their wealth 
and influence to secure it. It is to be remembered also that the commander-in-chief of the American armies, the father of our country, was a member of her household. Washington himself attended and ordered all of his men to attend the services of his chaplains, who were clergymen from the various churches. He gave $40,000 to establish a Presbyterian college in his native state, which took his name in honor of the gift and became Washington College. N. S. McFartridge has thrown light upon another major development of the Revolutionary Period. For the sake of accuracy and completeness, we shall take the privilege of quoting him rather extensively. Another important factor in the independent movement, says he, was what is known as the Mecklenburg Declaration, proclaimed by the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians of North Carolina, May 20th, 1775, more than a year before the Declaration of Independence of Congress. It was the fresh, hearty greeting of the Scotch-Irish to their struggling brethren in the North in their bold challenge to the power of England. They had been keenly watching the progress of the contest between the colonies and the crown, and when they heard of the address presented by the Congress to the king declaring the colonies in actual rebellion, they deemed it time for patriots to speak. Accordingly, they called a representative body together in Charlotte, North Carolina, which, by unanimous resolution, declared the people free and independent, and that all laws and commissions from the king were henceforth null and void. In their declaration were such resolutions as these, We do hereby dissolve the political bands which have connected us with the mother country, and hereby absolve ourselves from all allegiance to the British crown. We hereby declare ourselves a free and independent people, are of a right ought to be a sovereign and self-governing association under control of no power other than that of our God and the general government of Congress, to the maintenance of which we solemnly pledge to each other our mutual cooperation and our lives, our fortunes and our most sacred honor. That assembly was composed of 27 staunch Calvinists just one-third of whom were ruling elders in the Presbyterian Church, including the President and Secretary, and one was a Presbyterian clergyman. The man who drew up that famous and important document was the Secretary Ephraim Brevard, a ruling elder of the Presbyterian Church and a graduate of Princeton College. Bancroft says of it that it was, in effect, a declaration as well as a complete system of government. It was sent by special messenger to the Congress in Philadelphia and was published in the Cape Fear Mercury and was widely distributed throughout the land. Of course, it was speedily transmitted to England where it became the cause of an intense excitement. The identity of sentiment and similarity of expression in this declaration and the great declaration written by Jefferson could not escape the eye of the historian. Hence, Tucker in his Life of Jefferson says, Everyone must be persuaded that one of these papers must have been borrowed from the other. But it is certain that Brevard could not have borrowed from Jefferson, for he wrote more than a year before Jefferson. Hence, Jefferson, according to his biographer, must have borrowed from Brevard. But it was a happy plagiarism, 
for which the world will freely forgive him. In correcting his first draft of the Declaration, it can be seen in at least a few places that Jefferson has erased the original words and inserted those which are first found in the Mecklenburg Declaration. No one can doubt that Jefferson had Brevard's resolutions before him when he was writing his immortal Declaration. The striking similarity between the principles set forth in the form of government of the Presbyterian Church and those set forth in the Constitution of the United States has caused much comment. When the fathers of our republic sat down to frame a system of representative and popular government, says Dr. E. W. Smith, their task was not so difficult as some have imagined. They had a model to work by. If the average American citizen were asked who was the founder of America, the true author of our great republic, he might be puzzled to answer. We can imagine his amazement at hearing the answer given to this question by the famous German historian Ranke, one of the profoundest scholars of modern times. Says Ranke, John Calvin was the virtual founder of America. The Abergene whose history of the Reformation is a classic, writes, Calvin was the founder of the greatest of republics. The pilgrims who left their country in the reign of James I and landing on the barren soil of New England founded populous and mighty colonies were his sons, his direct and legitimate sons, and that American nation which we have seen growing so rapidly boasts as its father the humble reformer on the shore of Lake Lehman. Dr. E. W. Smith says, These revolutionary principles of republican liberty and self-government, taught and embodied in the system of Calvin, were brought to America, and in this new land where they have borne so mighty a harvest, were planted by whose hands? The hands of Calvinists. The vital relation of Calvin and Calvinism to the founding of the free institutions of America However, strange in some ears the statement of Ranke may have sounded, is recognized and affirmed by historians of all lands and creeds. All this has been thoroughly understood and candidly acknowledged by such penetrating and philosophic historians as Bancroft, who, far though he was from being Calvinistic in his own personal convictions, simply calls Calvin the father of America, and adds, he who will not honor the memory and respect the influence of Calvin knows but little of the origin of American liberty. When we remember that two-thirds of the population at the time of the Revolution had been trained in the school of Calvin, and when we remember how unitedly and enthusiastically the Calvinists labored for the cause of independence, we readily see how true are the above testimonies. There were practically no Methodists in America at the time of the Revolution, and in fact the Methodist Church was not officially organized as such in England until the year 1784, which was three years after the American Revolution closed. John Wesley, great and good man though he was, was a Tory and a believer in political non-resistance. He wrote against the American Revolution, but accepted the providential result. McFartridge tells us the Methodists had hardly a foothold in the colonies when the war began. In 1773 they claimed about 160 members. 
Their ministers were almost all, if not all, from England and were staunch supporters of the crown against American independence. Hence, when the war broke out, they were compelled to fly from the country. Their political views were naturally in accord with those of the great leader, John Wesley, who wielded all the power of his eloquence and influence against the independence of the colonies. He did not foresee that independent America was to be the field on which his noble church was to reap her largest harvests, and that in that declaration which he so earnestly opposed lay the security of the liberties of his followers. In England and America the great struggles for civil and religious liberty were nursed in Calvinism, inspired by Calvinism, and carried out largely by men who were Calvinists. And because the majority of historians have never made a serious study of Calvinism, they have never been able to give us a truthful and complete account of what it has done in these countries. Only the light of historical investigation is needed to show us how our forefathers believed in it and were controlled by it. We live in a day when the services of the Calvinists in the founding of this country have been largely forgotten and one can hardly treat of this subject without appearing to be a mere eulogizer of Calvinism. We may well do honor that creed which has borne such sweet fruits into which America owes so much. 8. Calvinism and Representative Government While religious and civil liberty have no organic connection, they nevertheless have a very strong affinity for each other and where one is lacking, the other will not long endure. History is eloquent in declaring that on a people's religion ever depends their freedom or their bondage. It is a matter of supreme importance what doctrines they believe, what principles they adopt, for these must serve as the basis upon which the superstructure of their lives and their government rests. Calvinism was revolutionary. It taught the natural equality of men, and its essential tendency was to destroy all distinctions of rank and all claims of superiority which rested upon wealth or vested privilege. The liberty-loving soul of the Calvinist has made him a crusader against those artificial distinctions which raise some men above others. Politically, Calvinism has been the chief source of modern Republican government. Calvinism and Republicanism are related to each other as cause and effect, and where a people are possessed of a former, the latter will soon be developed. Calvin himself held that the church under God was a spiritual republic, and certainly he was a republican in theory. James I was well aware of the effects of Calvinism when he said, Presbytery agreeeth as well with the monarchy as God with the devil. Bancroft speaks of the political character of Calvinism, which with one consent and with instinctive judgment the monarchs of that day feared as republicanism. Another American historian, John Fiske, has written, It would be hard to overrate the debt which mankind owes to Calvin. The spiritual father of Coligny, of William the Silent, and of Cromwell, must occupy a foremost rank among the champions of modern democracy. The promulgation of this theology was one of the longest steps that mankind has ever taken 
toward personal freedom. Emilio Castellur, the leader of the Spanish liberals, says that Anglo-Saxon democracy is the product of a severe theology learned in the cities of Holland and Switzerland. Buckley, in his History of Civilization, says Calvinism is essentially democratic. And D. Tocqueville, an able political writer, calls it a democratic and republican religion. The system not only imbued its converts with the spirit of liberty, but it gave them practical training in their rights and duties as free men. Each congregation was left to elect its own officers and to conduct its own affairs. Fisk pronounces it one of the most effective schools that has ever existed for training men in local self-government. Spiritual freedom is the source and strength of all other freedom, and it need cause no surprise when we are told that the principles which govern them in ecclesiastical affairs gave shape to their political views. Instinctively, they preferred the representative government and stubbornly resisted all unjust rulers. After religious despotism is overthrown, civil despotism cannot long continue. We may say that the spiritual republic, which was founded by Calvin, rests upon four basic principles. These have been summed up by an eminent English statesman and jurist, Sir James Stephan, as follows. These principles were, firstly, that the will of the people was the one legitimate source of the power of the rulers. Secondly, that the power was most properly delegated by the people to their rulers by means of elections in which every adult man might exercise the right of suffrage. Thirdly, that in ecclesiastical government the clergy and laity were entitled to an equal and coordinate authority. And fourthly, that between the church and state no allegiance or mutual dependence or other definite relation necessarily or properly existed. The principle of the sovereignty of God when applied to the affairs of government proved to be very important. God as the supreme ruler was vested with sovereignty and whatever sovereignty was found in man had been graciously granted to him. The scriptures were taken as the final authority as containing eternal principles which were relative for all ages and on all peoples. In the following words, the scriptures declared the state to be a divinely established institution. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.